Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. And this is today's, no, this is actually yesterday's edition of Bible Bites. I apologize for that. I will be back on in a little while to do today's edition of Bible Bites. But yesterday I was not able to get this recorded for you. So I want to go back and do that now so that we continue through the entire Word of God with none missing. That is my goal for this year. I'm working very hard at that, uh, at that goal. So God bless you today and welcome. To, uh, for yesterday's reading, my reading was the book of Micah. We're still in the book of the Twelve or the Twelve Minor Prophets. They're called minor because of the shortness of the length of their um, words and that kind of thing. They, they take up very little space in the scripture, so to speak. So anyway, this is the book of Micah. It does not mean that they're minor in the sense of their message. <clears throat> their message is very powerful. So today we're in Micah chapters 1 through 7 for this episode, which was yesterday's episode. And today we will look at the book of Nahum when I come back on in just a little bit. The prophet Micah was from Moresheth Gath. We, are, we find that out in, um, and we attest to it in Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. He had his ministry during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, or approximately his ministry was from 740 to 710 BC, so about 30 years, it looks like. And this was before and after the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom. His hometown, Moresheth Gath, was a low, it was in the lowlands of Judah, near Philistia, and it was a rural village. And also Micah became and was a contemporary of Isaiah, the prophet. And he was mentioned, as I mentioned, in Jeremiah chapter 26 there as well. So Jeremiah even attests to his prophetic ministry. In chapter 1, we find that it's prophetic of the coming doom that is upon them, the prophets have basically some major themes that run throughout. First of all, they're prophets because they're sent to warn the people. There's coming judgment, but if you turn and repent before the Lord, you may be able to escape the judgment or it may be postponed beyond your generations. So it's very important, <coughs> their ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 3 and 4, I also find of chapter 1 that it is prophetic of Jesus' second coming when he will come back in vengeance. <clears throat> and in chapter 1, I just want to read to you verse 9. There, there are several chapters here, so we're going to skim through them. And I want to really hit some highlights of what I sensed as I was reading through these that I'm to share with you. First of all, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 1. It's speaking of the coming judgment and, and the nation of Israel and what they've done to deserve this judgment that's coming upon them with all their harlotries and their idolatries. And it says in verse 9, For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. In other words, they're not content to just do it up there. Now they're trying to even spread it to the southern kingdom of Judah and influence them in this evil path. 
And it says here, my, their wounds are incurable. And I just want to point out here, this does show us, as, it, as does other places in Scripture, there comes a point of no return with God's patience and long-suffering. He had been sending prophet after prophet to them. He had been warning them. He, they had it in their Torah that they read all the time, and the priests were supposed to know the Torah. They had Deuteronomy 28, for instance, the blessings and the curses. They knew, they knew, and they knew, and yet they rebelled, and they rebelled, and they rebelled, and they went willfully into their sin and their idolatry. And there comes a point when God says, enough is enough. I've given them time after time after time. I've given them warning after warning after warning. But there comes a point of no return. And they had reached that here. And that's what Micah means in that particular verse. Now, in chapter 2, he says he's giving, he's delivering a woe in verse 1 and 2 to those who devise iniquity, covet fields, take them by violence, houses and seize them. Uh, they're oppressing people and their inheritance. And it reminded me, now this was probably 100, 120 or so years after Ahab and Jezebel, but it reminded me about what they did with Naboth's vineyard. And I wondered if Micah, if even that may be in view here through the Holy Spirit, of, because the northern kingdom, Ahab and Jezebel, were probably the worst of the kings. And they instituted so much of these abominations that became embedded and implanted into the northern kingdom to bring them to this point to where God had to send the Assyrians to take them captive. But I do wonder about that because that's exactly what Ahab and Jezebel did with Naboth's vineyard. And so maybe the Holy Spirit had that in mind in the writing of these. And it also is something that we need to remember today. And this should affect how we view, treat, and protect property and property rights of other people. I wanted to go down in chapter 2 to verse 7. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? In other words, he's, he's saying, you know, they're, they're trying to get prophets and um, others to tell them and tell them and tell them. And he's saying here, wait a minute, my spirit's not restricted. You know, these evil things are not my doings, but my words, even in correction, do good to those who walk uprightly. This is an important word for us to remember. Chapter 3 is primarily an indictment against the evil leaders of Israel who have led the people to go astray. And you'll catch that as you read through here. He's really angry with the priests and, and the others. He even says in verse 11, Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Beloved, we need to understand that God is upset with those who are charging for the ministry work. Now, Jesus brought out this principle in the New Testament. Freely you have received, freely give. So the gospel is not for sale. And people 
and those that are out there that are trying to get your money, get you to constantly be, you know, sending them money for whatever reason. And especially if they're promising you some kind of special blessing, if your money will come to them and nobody else, you got to send it to their ministry to get this blessing. You need to be aware of those things. You need to be aware of that because that is not righteous and that's not good. Paul even said in one place, he said, I don't, I, I don't charge for the gospel. So we don't charge for the gospel. It is freely delivered and freely made available. And God be praised, may we never, ever charge for the gospel. There is a place for paying those who do the work of the ministry and supporting those ministries. Our ministry here at Covenant Truth Ministries is one of those. But we don't go out and we don't always beg for money and we're not trying to pressure people and all of that. If God lays on somebody's heart to give, amen. But we're not going to be out there trying to sell anything. We will not do that. The, the God who gave us this is his gift and we offer it back to him freely because freely we have received and freely we give and we give to you, beloved. So just beware of ministries that are out there for money or worse yet, are really trying to threaten you almost or coerce you into giving to them. Because that, that may not be from the Spirit of God. I don't believe it is. Matter of fact, Jesus clearly tells us that we're not to be that way. And we're not to be greedy for gain. And so I just encourage you, give when the Spirit of the Lord leads you to give to the ministries He ordains and calls you to give to. But don't let anyone pressure you into giving anything that, that the Spirit of God has not confirmed to you you are to give. Don't let, don't let the, the gospel is not for sale. We are to freely deliver it. And we do that with joy and with delight because of what God has done for us and what it means. In chapter four, in verse one through three, you can read this, but it's really speaking about the far fulfillment of when this will happen when Jesus Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. And I know there are some today that may even challenge that belief, but I do believe Jesus will come. He will establish his kingdom on the earth. That is what the Bible tells us from the beginning to the end. There are many references to that. As a matter of fact, I did a teaching on the millennial kingdom, and, um, and that will be made available to you. It is available on the Facebook page already. But um, I just want you to know that that is available. And in there, we've covered a tremendous amount that the Bible tells us about Jesus coming kingdom in the millennial reign. And so here are a few verses in chapter two, in chapter four of Micah, verses one through three, that also speak of that time when Jesus comes at his second coming and establishes his millennial reign. I wanted to read out of verse 8 of chapter 4, because a lot of times we skim through things and we might miss something that, that connects somewhere, and we, we really didn't catch the full meaning of that. In this passage, he's talking about Jesus' second coming, and he's also talking about when he will come and he will reign over them in Mount Zion. But then he, tacks, he tucks this verse in, in chapter 8, and he says, And you... O tower of the flock, Migdal Idar, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. 
even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, I believe that this passage has been often overlooked, but I and I've incorporated this in my Countdown to the Manger series that's a Christmas study, a small Christmas study, and um and I'm about to make that available also probably on the YouTube channel or whatever. But um but this is an oft overlooked prophecy that tells us, I think, and connects us with Luke chapter two more than we realize. The tower of the flock, which is what's mentioned here, is Migdal Idar. It was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 35 as the place near where Rachel died when she gave birth to Benjamin. The Jews have long awaited that Jesus the Messiah, or that the Messiah, would be coming there, would be announced from there. And I believe that this connects us to Luke chapter 2, specifically with the shepherds and the shepherds' field there, the angels' announcement to them, and particularly the instructions the angels gave them. Because the angels gave them only two basic clues to where to find Jesus. And they didn't have to go through Bethlehem knocking on doors in the middle of the night. The angel directed them exactly where they should go. The angel said, you will find the baby lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling cloths. That was three particular things, but, but the two were directional. The lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling cloths. These were temple shepherds. They, they used in that time when the Migdali Dar was still available to them. I don't know, you know, it's been torn down or ruined since then. But at that time, it was a place that the shepherds in that field knew very well. And from my research, it was a place where they would take the ewes when they were, the ewes when they were going to lamb, and they would take them in there to birth their lambs. And all of those lambs and all of those sheep that they were raising were destined to be Passover lambs in the temple. And so how fitting is it? that Jesus would be born and announced at this tower of the flock. Also where Rachel died giving birth, it's associated with birth there. If you keep on reading down in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, you'll see more uh, imagery about pregnancy and children and having birth and, and giving birth and those kinds of things. So I do believe that this tells us a lot more than we realize. And what it says here. It also tells us that there is a former dominion. In other words, the verses before this are speaking of Jesus coming as king in the millennial reign. But this is speaking of his former dominion, meaning he comes the first time differently. And the former dominion comes to the tower of the flock. And, and then the kingdom will come later on. The former dominion comes as the baby born in the manger there at the Tower of the Flock. So it's very possible that this is the location of his birth and that perhaps we have not really been able to connect that because we haven't understood the Tower of the Flock in previous passages. And he gives the promise of this verse coming to pass 
when you go on down in verse 10 and so forth, and he talks about the proof of the promised Messiah coming there is the fact that they will, in fact, be going into the Babylonian captivity and it is coming to them. And so now we look back and we see the historical record of the Babylonian captivity. And so that was proof to them that the Messiah was coming and this Tower of the Flock would be associated with the Messiah's coming in his first coming. Chapter 5, we're all familiar with verse 2, which also ties us to Luke chapter 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you were little among though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This tells us that he was coming to Bethlehem Ephrathath, which was little, meaning small and humble. He had humble beginnings. This was in the territory of Judah. And he is the ruler of Israel that would be coming there. But it also attests to his deity. He is everlasting. He is God. And we can connect that also with John chapter 1 where we read more about that. In verses 3 through 6 of chapter 5, we can see both a near and far fulfillment because we see the captivity, the Babylonian captivity in the near fulfillment. And then in the far fulfillment, the Jews were uh, in the diaspora until their eventual return and Jesus coming at the tribulation and during the millennial reign. Both of those seem to be evident through those verses right there. As well as in verse 4, it speaks here and it tells us about his first and his second coming. He fulfilled part of this verse in his first coming. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now, see, this is the second part. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. That's the part, first part of verse 5. So here we see the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ in this one verse also attested to. In verses 6 through 8, okay, in chapter 6, let's move on to chapter 6. In verses 6 through 8, I wanted to point out that this is telling us basically that God is not interested in religious duty. He's not interested in us going and just sitting ourselves in a pew on Sunday mornings every week. He's not interested in us just tithing because that's our duty to do or whatever it may be. He's not interested in religious duty if there is no sincerity of the true heart behind it. He's not interested in meaningless religious rituals, but rather in righteous living with each other and toward him. In essence, this concurs with Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments as well, where he summarized them as, as being in love with God, relationship with God, and loving each other relationship with other people. 
And that's the sum total of what God is expecting of all of his people. In verse 9 through 16, the rest of that chapter, or a large portion of chapter 6, the rest of chapter 6, he's telling us that he cannot and will not bless willful disobedience, rebellion, and idolatry. In other words, to, to really have God's blessing and favor upon us, we need to walk the walk. We need to live holy in order to receive his blessings. And then I want to close us with some beautiful uh, words from chapter 7. In verse 2, I found it interesting. It says, The faithful man is perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. And I thought, interestingly, that that connects some with Jesus' words when he mentioned, When I return, will I find faith in the earth? You know, there's something for us to think about in these days as we draw nearer to the closing, to the closing of the time period that we're living in, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus even attested to the words in verse 6 when it talks about a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Boy, did Jesus not have that to be the case when he came. And he spoke about that as well. I want to read verse 7 and 8 to you. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Praise God. What a beautiful promise of rescue and restoration. And that promise is also for us today, beloved. We can believe that word and we can claim that word and we can speak that word. So I pray it will encourage you now as well. And then I want to draw down to the last of what Micah ends with in verse 18 through 20 of chapter 7 of his book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. What a way to end this broadcast, recognizing that God delights in mercy. He does not hold his anger forever. He will again have compassion, forgive sins, and throw them into a sea of forgetfulness where there is no fishing allowed. We don't need to be fishing over past things that God has forgiven us from. And he always remembers and honors his covenant. What a great God we have who delights in mercy. Oh, I pray that is a blessing to you today and that this has been a good word for you to hear today. 
God bless you in Jesus' name, and may you join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. And I'll continue in a little while with the book of Nahum for today. God bless you in Jesus' name.